This is the Creative Funding Show, a podcast for authors, YouTubers, and podcasters who want to fund the work they love. Welcome back to the Creative Funding Show. I'm your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr., and with me today is Michelle Copper, who has helped thousands of creatives and small business owners embrace self-promotion and selling as a service. Michelle combines her journey with overcoming crippling stage fright with her performance background and ability to intuit aligned marketing language and help people create transformational messages. And today we're going to be talking about how to find your courage as a creative person and even more deeply, how to handle haters. So if haters are something that you worry about, this is an episode you will not want to miss. Michelle, welcome to the Creative Funding Show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So why is fear such a challenge for creative people? Well, I think that fear is uh, connected to a couple of things. One of the is one of them is the 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 vulnerability that we feel, and the other is the desire to bring something really big through some sort of creative gift or talent and we want it to be good enough and we want it to make a big impact and we want it to make a difference a lot of times and our our the fear is often connected to our desire to serve and create something really amazing. So when we have this big desire there, then uh, the stakes go up, right? It becomes uh, more and more vulnerable to uh, actually share it with the world. And I think the, the bigger the desire to share it and this calling that I think a lot of creatives have uh, is, then the higher our expectations can get, the higher our perfectionism and desire to make it good enough can get. And all of that just ends up creating even more fear. So I think it's an incredibly vulnerable act to create. Yeah. One thing different between creators and entrepreneurs is entrepreneurs generally have no fear of success. Uh, They're very optimistic people in general, and they can't wait to sell a million copies of their product. Or as a creative person often is afraid of failure, but they're also afraid like, oh my gosh, millions of people might see this and think that I did a bad job. Like success, even if somebody consumes what you're creating, you're like, what if I become the next Rebecca Black and get 100 million views on YouTube, but everyone's making fun of me and my song. And that is a unique challenge. It is unique and it is vulnerable because it feels so personal. Right. It's our creative gift or our creative idea, or our story, our song, our movie, our, you know, but I have met, uh, I'll tell you, thousands of <laughs> entrepreneurs who also have that very same fear. Uh, not all entrepreneurs, in my opinion, are actually I'm going to be so ready for success or I, I'm, they, they don't have the confidence necessarily because I'll tell you what I think. I think that being an entrepreneur, especially if you're in that transformational space, right? If you're an author, a speaker, an expert, or you're trying to bring through a big transformational gift, you know, a coach, a healer, uh, then that you're, that is a creative gift. And it is, I have met many people who do have that same level of fear. They could go and sell for a company or for someone else or be really confident at, Uh, marketing or promoting some other person's work. But when it comes to actually giving voice to their work and their thing and charging people for it, and um, I've met thousands of entrepreneurs that have that same hedge around uh, expressing and sharing and being visible, highly visible online and on camera and on stage. 
Yeah, it makes sense, especially for that kind of entrepreneur. When I'm thinking entrepreneur, I'm thinking of like the sort of person with venture funding and 50 employees in there, starting a traditional business. But you're right, being an author, uh, you know, for us, it totally makes sense. An author is an entrepreneur, right? You're running a business around your book. You're not just selling copies of your book. But for a lot of authors, they still think of themselves as artists. <laughs> like, I am creating a novel, and the purpose of this novel is to entertain, and it's an artistic expression. And the reality is, is that, all art is business and all business is art. It's, it's kind of a, a continuum. I love it. And I think that business is a creative act. Building a business and creating a business is a creative act. So it's also comes with that vulnerability for people who are sensitive. Artists are highly sensitive, right? So we're sensitive to people's opinions of us and doing well and on, and on all of that. So I think it's dialed up for, for the creatives. That's right. So tell me a little bit about your story. Has, has fear ever kept you back uh, from some sort of artistic expression or which, uh, some sort of creative activity? Absolutely. Fear um, uh, sabotaged uh, my every waking moment. I felt called from the youngest age. I remember being three years old in the church play and getting to be on stage with the angels at Christmas time. And I had to run and sit on my grandma's lap. I mean, I absolutely felt totally called and this longing inside to sing uh, with the heavenly host. And I was terrified. So I did, of course, decide to become a professional performer and uh, had a professional acting career from a very young age, moved to New York City. Um, I stopped singing because I was too scared. My body would betray me. I really felt that calling, but I shifted into acting. And then pretty soon that fear started to compromise all of my opportunities as an actor as well. I did have a you know, somewhat successful career as an actor uh, in New York City and um, was really that calling kept pushing at me and called me forward to continue to, um, I kept coming back to this piece around singing, this piece around my voice. And um, I lost, I carried fear into many, many audition rooms. I chose not to say yes to many, many opportunities because I knew my body would betray me. My throat would close up. I would start to cry or start to shake and I wouldn't be able to do it. So, you know, my nature, my journey, my, <laughs> my uh, uh, purpose, I think, is connected to the fact that I had to finally uh, I f kept coming back to the voice and I ultimately fast forward 20 years was um, I, I had to heal my ability to share my voice. Uh, uh, and that for me was connected to singing. So I did end up performing and having a rock band in New York City um, and overcoming that crippling stage fright. And uh, I, I completely believe today that that my real gift, my real journey in overcoming that, the point of it all was that I am uniquely able to help people today to heal their blocks and fears around being seen and heard and overcome their fear. But um, I lost many, many opportunities and, and, and uh, I believe that my creative career was completely compromised by my fear and my perfectionism and the charge that I had when I was in front of other people. I remember I was in choir in high school, in middle school, and I was in this jazz ensemble, um, like a vocal jazz group. Um, and I remember do, I, when I first got started, I was way younger than everybody else. Uh, I grew up very quickly. And as a homeschooler, uh, middle school and high school is kind of combined. So as a 13-year-old, you have access to high school stuff. And so I was in the high school 
you know, jazz ensemble because they were desperate for basses and I was a bass. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm with these big kids that are, you know, four, five, six years older than me who I totally look up to and I'm very intimidated by. And I'm just so freaked out at every performance. And I remember one of the performances I did um, was to the, it was at this uh, nonprofit and it was to their like, uh, appreciation, their Christmas, you know, like employee appreciation dinner. And it was really small. There was, I don't know, 15 people in the room. And there was like eight of us on stage. And But I just remember them really enjoying it. And that was like where it kind of snapped for me. I was like, and I realized, oh, this can be fun. It's not about getting the butterflies to go away. The butterflies can actually add to the fun. In fact, they can give you energy that you need to um, have that level of performance. If you're not nervous at all, often the lack of energy comes through in your performance, whether it's music or singing or, or what have you. And I, of course, I didn't realize all of that at the time. I just realized, oh, this can be fun. <laughs> like this doesn't <laughs> have to be a job. This can actually be fun. You're lucky. Yeah. And it was, and, and suddenly I started enjoying music and performing music um, for the performance sake. Some people don't struggle with it at all. Like they love performing so much that like give them a stage, give them the mic and they are just like, what do I have to do to get on that stage? And other people I don't think can come to enjoy it really at all. Like they are a behind the scenes kind of person and they just applause does not uh, suit them. And my wife is this way, like having the whole company gather around and give her applause for her was not a treat. <laughs> She's like, please stop. <laughs> um, but I feel like there's another group of people in the middle who can kind of learn uh, to enjoy it. Um, and that was definitely me. I, I didn't I wasn't drawn to the stage, but I learned to enjoy the stage. Yeah. And I would say that that nervousness is physiologically the same as excitement and, and the adrenaline and the, the physiology change that happens when we are being seen, right? We are being observed. Molecules behave differently under observation. And uh, we know, our bodies know. And then the story that we tell ourselves or the mental state that we get into around when that's happening uh, conditions our experience too. But we know when we're being watched and it does feel vulnerable. But when you know that the physiology of fear or stage fright is almost identical to excitement and you have some tools and I think we need, you know, support and healing around uh, having our own permission to be seen and heard, uh, knowing we don't have to be perfect and uh, really give, you know, finding a way to, to give ourselves that breathing room to go ahead and, and let ourselves enjoy it. And practice. Because I'll say the times when I was nervous as a musician were the times when I did not feel fully prepared. And then later on in my life, you know, as a speaker, I'd be speaking to a different audience or a bigger audience. I remember one of the most nerve wracking talks I ever gave was to my own church, right? It was you know, two or 300 people in, a, in the congregation. I was doing the sermon and I had spoken to far more people than that. And I spoke all the time, but these people knew me. Like I grew up with these people. Like this was a scary audience. And my church has a tendency of heckling. Like they are not um, a passive, quiet congregation. It's not negative heckling necessarily, but like you, it, you're not going to get through a 30 minute sermon or an hour long sermon without feedback verbally from yeah. somebody in the <laughs> congregation. Sounds like a party. <laughs> it's, a, it's an exciting church. I like it, but it's also like, oh, this is an intimidating audience um, to to give a talk to, and. Part of what helps in those sorts of situations is like I've given this talk before. I've spoken a lot of times before. 
and just doing that practice uh, when you know the big game is on the line hopefully it's not your first football game right we had uh, I, I root for the University of Texas Longhorns and we had this like star quarterback Colt McCoy and he's in the national championship and in the first half of the game he gets injured and he's taken off the field and his backup who had not played a single game hardly that whole season who is this boy wonder but he was a redshirt freshman we we're trying not to play him to preserve his red shirt and so his first game of his football career is the national championship <laughs> oh my god how'd he do and it like scarred him like he never he didn't we lost and he didn't do terrible like because he still had a good team around him but he didn't he wasn't colt mccoy and being held up to that pedestal, it kind of scarred him as a quarterback. And he I don't think he psychologically was ever able to recover because he, he wasn't faithful in the little things, right? He he didn't play against the cream puff team at the beginning of the season and then against the like bigger, better teams, you know, in the conference and then finally in the championship. No, he's like, no, he went straight to playing Alabama in the national championship. That's his very first game. And a lot of people are like, Man, I just need my big break. You know, if only Oprah would have me on. If only a million people would know who I am. And it's like, actually, not having your big break yet may be a feature, not a bug. Because it's your opportunity to practice your craft. And I realize I'm giving kind of, you know, sports metaphors. I don't think we have, you know, any professional athletes in the in our audience. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm almost keeping up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, sports ball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but 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 it's the same. But the pressure is similar. It's the performance pressure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then how we're not taught to navigate it necessarily. And as a creative, we're kind of our, our sensitivity can be very um, uh, call, uh, grown, you know, nurtured and nourished and uh, our perceptivity. But we're not necessarily taught how to practice or how to uh, the art of performance and uh, how to I think that, you know, like, did he have a choice about how many games he played or was that up to his coach? Right. So how do you put yourself in the game and prepare and practice? And I think that being prepared involves I, I mean, in terms of creatives, I think that it's always, you know, uh, every great performance has a director. Right. So having the support and the mentorship on the actual performance piece. Right. It's not just about dialing your talk in and memorizing it, but it's about how did you you know, how do you engage with the audience? How do you connect with the audience? How do you when do you pause and where do you move and all of the different layers of performing? So absolutely with the preparation and preparation can half the nerves again and again. And I don't think a lot of people know how to prepare. Right. How do you practice? Right. And it's so important. And it is becoming, even creative work is becoming more like sports, right? When I was performing in high school, people would say good performance, but there was no real way to know if it was a good performance or not. Now, if our videos on YouTube, everyone knows how many views we have. It's the first thing they see often before they see the video. It's like, oh, this video only has 22 views. And it's almost like there's this giant scoreboard hanging over our, our tas artistic expression that hasn't really existed in such a like public way before. Right. The only alternative to that is to not promote your work and to hide in a closet and then nobody ever hears your song. Right. So, yeah, it is vulnerability. And I think that's what amps up the fear. Right. I had a client who was uh, a singer songwriter and she's like, I keep going into the studio and making music, but nobody listens. Nobody wants to listen. And I was like, you, so your job is to engage, right? You know, it, it, any creative is also a marketer, 
right? And, and how do we, and, and marketing doesn't have to be a bad, horrible thing. Uh, most of us are scared to like own our value and be excited about our creative projects. Because on one hand, we're all told that we can be a superstar. But on the other hand, we're told that, uh, you know, don't be too big for your britches. And everybody's going to think, la, 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 you know, if you overstep or if you actually are proud of your work. So there's this really weird, especially in America anyway, I'll say there's a weird dichotomy of, you know, push and pull, like, don't be too full of yourself, but don't suck, right? So, you know, no pressure, right? How do I find my way in there? And we do feel vulnerable with our creative gifts, writing a book and putting it out in the world, you know, which I only recently have done, and it's vulnerable. I'm way more confident sharing my songs or sharing my music now than I am about that. But I think that that um, willing to put our ideas and our thoughts and our creativity out in the world is uh, essential. I think that the world needs it now more than ever. And uh, we need to find our voice and share our voice. And the stakes are high, but it's, we're scared because we care. We're scared because it matters. We're scared because it's vulnerable. And that's why I think, you know, I think of artists as spiritual gladiators, really. We are you know, willing to do the other path, to follow the other path, to do that deeper, vulnerable work. I also think that we can be vastly successful and powerful, and that's where we can actually use the things that may scare us or we may judge, like marketing and self-promotion, right? <laughs> that's right. And if what you're doing is important, and if you do believe in it, it's worth putting in the practice to get good at it. And specifically, the deliberate practice this is one of the things I learned later on in my life is the difference between practice and deliberate practice. And it was... Um, that term first came out in the myth, um, talent myth or myth of talent, but it was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell's book where he talked about the 10,000 hour rules, which came from that first book originally. But 10,000 hours of practice is not 10,000 hours of playing basketball. It is 10,000 hours of deliberately playing basketball, deliberately practicing. So, so what's the difference between practice and deliberate practice? Well, deliberate practice, you are going to that thing that you are worst at and you're working specifically on it. You're drilling, you're training. So if you're bad at throwing free throws, you do that. Um, for uh, creatives, especially YouTubers and podcasters, the what changes something from practice to deliberate practice is whether or not you listen to your podcast episodes, <laughs> like, and whether or not, and how, and whether or not you listen to your speeches, whether or not you read uh, or consume your own art as a uh, critic, and then give yourself that criticism to then improve. And I would go further to say, too, that having outside eyes and outside perspective and outside support and coaching is going to make you better. Absolutely. I know that it's hard to make the time to go back and watch your webinar and you got to go back and look and see what you did or listen to your podcast. I think that's brilliant. I totally agree. But I also think that you can't watch yourself and perform at the same time, right? You're not objective. Somebody else might be able to see something or give unlock something for you that makes you better. And that is essential in, in terms of getting better and improving yourself. You know, you can't be your own. It's very challenging to be your own director, right? I mean, Ser Serena Williams still has a tennis coach. I mean, think about that for a little bit. Serena Williams, who is probably the greatest female athlete, full stop in any sport, and maybe the greatest female tennis player ever in the history of the sport. Definitely in the top 
you know, top echelons of historic female tennis players. If anyone would be like, I've gotten to the point and I no longer need a coach, uh, you'd think it would be somebody like Serena Williams. But for that very reason, that outside perspective, um, top athletes uh, do need that outside uh, perspective. But it's, it, you know, for a lot of people, they're not to the point of having a coach yet. And like the first step is being willing to watch film of your performance. Absolutely. But not to expect yourself to know how to make it better right? Doesn't mean you suck and you're, it's worthless and you're never going to get better, right? Watching can make you better just watching itself, right? That's what you're saying, right? Deliberate practice, going back and listening and reviewing and seeing how it went is brilliant. But you don't also don't have to expect that you're going to be the one to figure out how to open it up. Every great performance has a director. That's why I talk about, you know, creativity thrives in collaboration. You know, you're not the star of the play. You didn't write the play. You're the star of the play and you don't have a director. That play is, could be better, right? If you wrote it and you're starring in it and you directed it yourself, I can guarantee you it could get 50% better with some outside eyes, some outside questions. What about this? How does this work? What are you going here? Getting clear, diving in. And it's also way more fun to create. And to speak to this thing about preparation, I think that is an essential part of preparation is having the outside collaboration so that your idea comes through and it is expanded. Somebody, there's nothing more freeing as an actor than working with a fantastic director who helps you get even more connected to your own stuff and more vulnerable and opens you up. It's like jumping out of an airplane. It's so freeing and it's so expansive and it's so exciting and you can't get there alone. It's one of the myths I think I think artists go through, especially actors, where go to acting school, go to graduate school, go to all these auditions. And when then we're supposed to we have these teachers and this, you know, these training and we go we do plays where there's a director and a, a sound designer and a set designer and a costume designer and other actors. And then we're supposed to go off in our rooms and prepare these amazing professional auditions with no outside eyes or no outside help. Don't get me started. I was <laughs> spent a lot of years coaching actors on their auditions and doing them myself. And it's, it's, not, it's not a realistic expectation. You don't have to go off in your silo and create this magnificent masterpiece, right? It thrives with collaboration and support. Yeah, so we're talking about deliberate practice and there's the reviewing it yourself, there's having a coach review it. And then the third kind of piece, the third part of the stool is feedback from your audience. And this is where that scoreboard, which in some ways is this big liability, in other ways it's a huge asset, right? YouTube will tell you exactly where in the YouTube video you got drop off right it's like oh you're two at two minutes and 30 seconds suddenly you had a bunch of people who got bored and left this video and that is really useful to know it's like okay well let's go to that part of the video talk about deliberate practice what did i do there that turned out oh i started cussing oh it turns out that my audience doesn't like that or oh i mentioned religion and my audience like you start to learn about what resonates with your audience and what works or what they find uh boring and uh, I found this very helpful with blogging, too. We would look very closely at our analytics, right? What posts are performing? And not just in terms of page views, but also time on the post, right? Some of our blog posts would have five minutes as the average amount of time somebody's reading the post. Like, wow, there's something here. And we were able to find that conventional wisdom was actually wrong, at least as far as our audience was concerned. The conventional wisdom has changed, but like the conventional wisdom at the time was like, you have to write short blog posts. People want to read short blog posts. And we were looking and we're like, actually, our long posts are performing better than our short posts. And so we're like, we're going to forget that conventional wisdom. We're going to write substantive longer posts. And now 
of course, the, the wisdom has changed. And everyone's like, no, you got to write longer <laughs> posts. Google likes longer posts, write in-depth <laughs> articles. <laughs> and it'll change again, but you'll look at your own stats and see what's working for you and your audience. Yeah. And the same with webinars. If you're creating a training, especially if it's a training to sell, you know, you want to find where it's working and you can absolutely see those stats and going through and looking at like what happened, what was the blip there. Uh, and sometimes you may go, oh, I see what I did. I need to fix that. And sometimes you may need somebody else to come in and go, oh, you know what happened here? I bet it was this. Right. So again, for the collaboration and that's this is all preparation. Right. I would add to that. You have to get out there and do it. Right. You can't wait until you think it's good enough and look at your stats and all your inner work. Well, I think this is going to work and then go do it. Like that's what you're saying too about the audience, right? So you have to, you know, hopefully you can get in the game before you're in the championship. Right. It's like, oh, I don't want to practice guitar. I'm not good enough at guitar to practice guitar. That's why I never learned to play the guitar. It's exactly <laughs> the reason I've lived that dream. <laughs> there's there's literally only one way to get good at guitar. It's not about reading books. It's not about watching webinars on how to play guitar. You have to actually pick up a guitar in your hands. I hire guitar players. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, or have, have somebody else play the guitar. Exactly. And I work with amazing accompanists. And I, I'm a singer songwriter, right? So I, I the whole song and the melody often really just downloads right into my right through me and I can play the piano and put my song together and that's great but when I work with somebody else just to speak to collaborating it's it's so fast and free and exciting and there's it's you're you're added to so that what you're creating is then something even bigger than you we're almost out of time but before we go I do want to talk about haters and trolls because that's another part of it so there's the kind of general disdain of people like oh I don't think that was a very good job but that's different from somebody who is specifically trolling you or specifically hating on you how is that different and and how do you handle it how is it different the um uh, well everybody's allowed to have their opinion but when it starts to get personal and it starts to be repeated and it starts to feel like a personal attack um and it's targeted and aimed and repetitive it's a kind of a stress. It's a kind of a post-traumatic stress, right? It feels scary. It feels unsafe and it can be incredibly, um, feel incredibly vulnerable if you have somebody who's targeting you, who you have become the, the, the target for their hate and insecurity and fear and contempt, right? So having somebody who disagrees with you and tunes out is no big deal. You know, if they unsubscribe from your list or, you know, whatever, who cares, right? That's good. You want that to happen. You want them to self-select if they want to be there or not. But when somebody's really targeting you, it feels personal and it can feel really scary, I think. Yeah. One of the things that I found that's very helpful is the phrase, you are not my target market. It's a very empowering phrase because rec one, it doesn't disregard their opinion. Right. Uh, but in another sense, it totally disregards their opinion. <laughs> it's like your opinion is valid. <laughs> I'm not talking to you. Yeah. And I acknowledge <laughs> that you feel that way, but you are not my target market. Uh, like a lot of people get offended that I work in like Christian references and religious stuff to basically everything I do, right? Because being a Christian is a part of who I am. And so it comes out in speeches and I I don't censor myself a whole lot when I'm speaking to secular groups. And it's like, if you don't like it, you're not my target audience. Yeah, And, and what I found is that that um, mutes often their rebuttal. They don't have some good rebuttals to that because I'm basically being like, here's the group of people I'm trying to reach and you're now not in that group. 
that doesn't always work though. And I found that the most painful trolls and haters to deal with are people who you can't honestly say that to, right? You're writing to, you know, moms of preschoolers and there's a mom of a preschooler who hates you, right? It's like, well, you can't say, oh, you're not my target market, you mom of a preschooler. Schooler. And that that can be harder uh, to handle. Have you dealt with that? Yeah, it, I I think it feels personal. First, I also want to say, like, I've also been told, like, as soon as you start getting a hater, it means that you actually have some traction, right? Like, you can also, like, if people are taking enough notice of you to to hate you, it means that people, you're at least you're being visible. You know, you're you're out there in the world. I've I've heard some people kind of spin it that like your first few haters mean that you're actually. Um, on the radar, right? So that can be a good thing. That's oh, how. That's absolutely true, right? If because there's a lot of people who are wrong on the internet. For somebody to take the time <laughs> to feel like they need to correct you specifically is them acknowledging you have power, you have influence. I don't like how you're using that power and influence. I think you're wrong, and then they go into their hate. If if they think that you're some just gnat flying around, they're just going to ignore you. So in a sense, a hater is a compliment, but it's like the worst kind of compliment. But it feels bad. I think. <laughs> that the main thing is that you cannot take it personally, right? Like, and that is really hard. It's easy to say, don't take it personally, but I think you really need to do some pretty deep mindset and inner work. And then also take care of yourself with boundaries. Like if it's not that you're not my target market, you know, like you are free to not be here, right? This community is only for people who want to be here and you're obviously don't want to be here, right? So, you know, why don't you find another community, right? It's not, it's not, um, you know, you can't please everybody. And also having a hater can, you know, having a polarizing idea can be great for your views and your momentum, right? Like having a strong opinion and staking and saying, this is who I am and who I, what I stand for is more powerful and effective in terms of, you know, getting traction from your marketing or your shows or, you know, having people see you. Polarizing isn't necessarily a bad thing. And it's an opportunity for you to step into owning your voice, your opinion, your power and like, hey, I bless and release you. If this isn't for you, you do not have to be here, but you don't get to rain on my parade, right? You know? And that's right. And and not letting them win, I think, is, is really key. And I think that you need to not feed it, right? I mean, there's only so much you can do. You can say, look, you obviously don't want to be here. Peace to you. You know, bye-bye. Yeah. When was, when was the last time you, dear listener, had your mind changed by somebody else on the internet telling you you were wrong? Probably never. And so if it, if it has never worked on you, and, and let, I'm imagining countless people have tried, you trying it on someone else is not going to work on them either. You're not going to convince a hater to not be a hater. Now, there's a great uh, episode of Parks and Rec on this where Leslie Nope has this focus group and this one guy just hates her. And she spends the whole episode trying to get this guy to like her and vote for her. <laughs> and at the end of the episode, he still hates her. <laughs> He's like, she fails to win him over. And everyone in her life is like, don't don't worry about this guy. There's all these other people who are going to vote for you. Like his one vote. Yeah, don't, don't let it get her down. She's like, no, I have to win this guy over. And that kind of thinking I think can be uh, very uh, detrimental. Yeah. And what we resist persists. So if you spend all this energy trying to convert one hater instead of listening and hearing and reciprocating and providing value for the people who want to hear, you know, it's exhausting and it's a, it's a trap. It's a trick, right? That, that gives them power and then they win, right? So, you know, 
take yourself, you know, if it's buying yourself some flowers or taking a bubble bath or having some ice cream or, you know, like it doesn't feel good. It's a real thing. And it feels like crap. And maybe you'll think twice about whether or not you're going to go. Do you really need to say that nasty thing? It's very easy to say the nasty thing online. And they're they're taking power from it that they're they're trying to make themselves feel better. And we all love to be right. But when we start to fight that and, and defend um, we're, we're giving them, giving the power away. We really have the power when we, um, let it go and, you know, invite them to go away. Right. Like I hear you. Thanks for sharing. This is obviously not a place that's making you happy. Why don't you leave? And and it is. And, and just real, real quick before you go, it also is really nice to have a place that's like a hater free zone, like places where you can go, where you feel safe. And that's actually one of the things I like about Patreon, because in order for somebody to be there, they have to give you money which excludes all of the haters pretty much like no one's going to give you money just to insult you <laughs> like that. They just, they just won't. Uh, and so it's nice to have like your core audience uh, that's there. In fact, I didn't even think about this as a feature of Patreon. I was, I was interviewing Bremner Morris who's on staff with Patreon. He was talking about how it's more or less a hater free zone. It's like one of the free safe places on the internet. And I was like, that's awesome. And like, that's true. Like I gotten pushback everywhere except from Patreon, Patreon on Patreon. The worst somebody does is they stop becoming a patron, right? Like every month they have an opportunity. Like, do you want to pay, you know, to stay on as a patron? They either do or they don't. Which is why I'm I'm happy to be an affiliate of Patreon because I believe in what they're doing and, and the kind of community uh, that they are creating. Uh, Michelle, uh, any final thoughts and where can people find out more about you online? Um, you can go to my website, Michelle at michellecopper.com and uh, find all kinds of stuff there, some quizzes and fun things. Um, and I, uh, my parting thoughts are, you know, we're talking about fear and worrying about the haters can make you uh, you know, it, it really lets them win. So, you know, have it's, you don't have to bootstrap your way through the practicing and the being brave part to, to get the support and have not only that, you know, hater free zone, but the support in your life and the tools and the community up around you to, um, build your confidence and to help your, you know, really trust yourself and to take the tender places, right? It doesn't all have to be online, but to honor the courage that you have without fear, you don't need courage. So your courage and you're cultivating your daring and really choosing to let your gift and your message and your mission and whatever you feel called to create out in the world is an incredibly brave act. And just the act of being brave and putting it out there is really uh, ma making a huge uh, contribution to everyone, to the whole to the whole world. It's really raising the vibration. So just to say that your message and your mission, let that be the, the motivation. Let the, the thing that you're here to contribute be the motivation and then get the support you need to navigate the fears or insecurities that come up and the potential haters that might come down the road. All right. Excellent. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the Creative Funding Show today. Thank you. What a pleasure. Great conversation. Thank you so much. And uh, we will have links to Michelle's website in the show notes, which you can find at creativefunding.show. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. Thank you for listening.